Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Jason mentioned during the announcements the recent events in the city of Charlottesville and uh, one of the things that I think is interesting just about the way that God works in his sovereignty and the timing of this event and the timing of why we chose this book and the purpose for what Paul is doing in repairing the Galatian church from this real real damaging wound that will shipwreck them, uh, it's just an interesting series of events to notice. Uh, we sang songs this morning about the unity of God's people for the mission that he has for them. And we sang a song about the, the asking of our Father collectively as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He didn't say, my Father. He taught them to pray, our Father, let your kingdom come, your will be done. And so even as we move to the close of this letter, I just want to remind you of some of the purposes of Paul's heart. He's writing to a church 
that is in danger of dying. He's writing to a church that has cancer, and he's writing, to use his words, a sharp, a, a sharp object to slice away that which will breed death in them. And so it makes complete sense that at the end of his letter, he would once again turn to the point of the church. Why does the church exist? And as I was preparing this, this uh, chapter, I just was captivated by Paul's vision of what he believes the church should be. And so today I want to look at his heart as he demonstrates through the commands that he gives. We've been looking at the law and the nature of the law and how the law itself, the law given through Moses, the law of the scriptures, that law reveals the heart of the Father. The reason why God prohibits murder is because he is the creator of life. The reason he hates and and forbids adultery is he's the creator of each marriage. And so the law reveals his heart. Likewise, Paul's commands to this church that is basically bleeding and gushing out, he commands them to do something that will, like an immune system in a body or a repairing system, will, will close up the wound and begin that, for that scar to heal and to be restored. And I was so captivated by the graciousness of what he commands to be done in the church that I wanted to title this message appropriately. So what we're looking at today as we close this series in the book of Galatians is the grace of the Christian church. Now, this is our bread and butter here at GCF. Our church is called Grace Christian Fellowship. This is part of our core value, our core identity, as we seek to be a people who love those who are outside of the church and who radically and thoroughly disciple those who are in the church, not just members locally, but also anyone we encounter, anyone in the larger body of Christ. Paul here doesn't say, as we'll see in a few minutes, do good to the household of faith in that Galatian congregation. The the notion is that the Christian church is a bastion. It is a refuge for the people of God to be equipped and to be restored. And so I was just so impressed with Paul's heart through the commands that he gives, which of course we know are by the Holy Spirit and therefore are God's commands to his people. But something that's interesting is Paul moves quickly past frustration with the Galatian church to positive commands. Remember, we saw how he said, I'm confident that in the Lord that you will take no other view. Paul is understanding that now that he has removed the thorn or dug out the bullet, now he needs to put a seal on the wound for the Galatian church to be repaired. Now, I want you to understand that what's going on in Galatia is civil war. There are people who've come in, claimed to be Christians, maybe indeed were Christians. I think Paul at this point was a Christian, and I think Peter at this point was a Christian, and Paul has to publicly confront him. This is civil war, unlike probably anything the world has ever seen. There was a real controversy in Galatia, and so what he's commanding here has to be read, not in the context of like, if that person said something bad to me on Facebook— It has to be read in the context of, oh, that's that brother who apostatized for the last four years. I need to receive him back into the faith. I need to receive him back into my heart, indeed. 
And so I want to look at three aspects of this chapter. We're going to divide it into three ideas or sections. First, I want to look at the commandments for restoration. As we'll see, this is a unique aspect of Christianity. No other faith or religious system in the world has something as beautiful and pure as this. Not only is our doctrine of God exclusive, not only is our doctrine of the incarnation exclusive, not only is our doctrine of atonement and forgiveness of sins and the hope of resurrection, not only are all those exclusive, but the Christian faith is the only faith in the world which has a beautiful doctrine of the church the people of God and their function for one another. All other faith claims are mostly either evangeli- uh, excuse me, individualistic or they are totalizing, as in, I sacrifice myself for the sake of the community. I'm trampled under for the family or for the larger community or my society. But here, he, Paul commands, as we're going to see in detail, he commands that they restore the individual. We're going to look at Christian charity and mission and how Paul commands them to cooperate together with their money for a point. And we're going to dismantle the prosperity teaching of these verses, and then we're going to actually reinforce what I believe is Paul's original intention, that they're not just sowing so that they get money back. We don't tithe in order to, a few weeks from now, get a check in the mail. We tithe in order to be able to fuel and to fund the mission of God. There is a way in which people have to eat, sleep, live, and pay their utility bills. And those people who are investing in the gospel, as Paul says, have the right to receive. And so we're actually going to simultaneously correct an error and then I think hopefully seal some good teaching around what it means to be generous with our money for the sake of mission, for the sake of Christian Christian mission. And then finally, I want to look at Paul's final warnings and how he uh, reiterates or reestablishes who is in and who is out. Remember, this book is about a controversy of a church where they were debating and questioning who is in and who is out. Who is part of the family of God? Who are the children of Abraham? And who is in real Israel? And then even at the end of the close of the letter, Paul uh, reinvigorates that idea that is those who are of faith, who are the children of Abraham. And he uses a phrase which actually is extremely important in how you read the New Testament. He says, peace be upon the Israel, not of the land, not of the ethnicity, the Israel of God, as he's established throughout his letter. So I want to look at those three things, the restoration and brotherly love, the Christian charity and mission that he commands, and then his final warnings and his ironic uh, turning back of the claim of the Judaizers back upon themselves in such a beautiful and humble way. So if you remember last week, Paul has just finished contrasting the works of the flesh, which he says are evident, and then we, we noticed last week how those were actually specifically prohibited in the Old Testament, each one of them. Uh, impurity, sexual immorality, anger, rivalries, dissensions, drunkenness, all of these things are commanded against their specific violations of the law. And so we see that Paul is not saying the law is unimportant, but rather keeping the law for righteousness is, is ended. 
Rather, we are forgiven in Christ, we are restored in Christ, and then by the Holy Spirit, we begin to keep the law from our heart. The great commission, excuse me, the great promise given by Jeremiah has come true. He has given us a new heart. He's taken the external code written on tablets and translated it by his spirit onto human hearts, and he's made them alive and put a new spirit within them, and as Jeremiah says, so that they can do the law from the heart. They can do the law in truth. So Paul, after he finishes this, he then gives them clear commands of what to do in exercising grace to one another. The restoration of saints bound up in sin is a unique mark of Christian life and witness in the world. This is so important. If you look at any other faith claim or any other system of religion around the world, every single one of them is, because it is of the devil, it is by nature oppressive, it consumes men, and those who violate the commandments of that religion have no means of repair. Whereas here, Paul says that they are commanded to, if it is a brother, not a false brother, if it is a brother, to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear with one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Is he contrasting this to the law of Moses? No. What he's saying is the law of Christ is the same as the law of Moses with exception to the ordinances within the commandments, as we've seen in Ephesians. Paul has his understanding of there were cultural markers, there were certain commandments to be done for the nation of Israel to be an exclusive people. Those elements of the law have been set aside because they were always destined to be. As we, if you were here during the Sunday school hour, those were the shadow of the law. But here, Paul is saying, fulfill the law. But interestingly enough, in saying, bear with one another's burdens, he's actually appealing to the law itself. Christian restoration of sin is a commandment. And I am to despise the sin which the brother has engaged in, but I am, not com- I am commanded exclusively not to despise the brother. I am commanded to restore the brother. Isn't this a wonderful aspect? Think about this. If the church was always commanded to expel the brother, although we are commanded to do that, if we expelled for all types of sin or any degree or quality of sin, we would quickly go to zero, on the, on the attendance chart. We would all have to leave basically right away. What Paul is saying is, is brothers, not who commit a sin and repent, it's brothers who are caught in sin. Brothers who are ensnared in sin. Brothers who can't even see they're in sin. They have to be corrected, and they have to be corrected in a, cha- in a way that would, that would fulfill these words, a spirit of gentleness that would be restorative. Not a spirit of gentleness that would be like dismissive, like, well, it's very clear that you don't quite get it. You should go to the church down the road. Maybe they can help, you know, fix you. Or it's very clear that you just aren't making any progress. Perhaps you're not the elect. Leave. That is not what Paul's saying. He's saying a spirit of gentleness that is restoring, and they have to do it looking unto themselves. That is to say, when I'm caught or confronted with someone's sin, I have to respond to that sin, and I have to name it as sin, 
and then I have to restore my brother in a spirit of gentleness and watch myself that I don't engage in the same sin or a similar sin in a different nature or or quality. That is what is absolutely positively commanded here. They are commanded to do that. And then he goes on to say, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The reason why he says this is because sin is a burden to those who are caught in sin. If they don't recognize the burden of that sin, then all the more they are like the ox who is suffering under the weight of their burden. They're about to be crushed by it. Paul, I believe, is specifically... uh, appealing to this verse in Exodus 23, 5. He, he, that command is, if you see your neighbor's ox and it's suffering under a load, so as to not be able to go on with the load or to die or be injured under the load, you're commanded to take it off. And so I believe that this is exactly what Paul is, is commanding. He's reiterating the force of the law and reiterating it in this idea of the law of Christ. That is, by the Spirit of Christ, by the Holy Spirit, we are supposed to reread the law and find the moral implication of the specific commands. So when we read a law and we see you're not allowed to let your neighbor's ox bear under a weight, we have to read that and say, oh, well, then I'm not allowed to let my brother suffer under the emotional turmoil of indwelling sin. I can't just not correct him. I can't just let him deal with his problems and I'll deal with mine. Now, at the same time, we have to read this in the rest of Scripture. Christ told us to take the speck out, then help our brother with the log. But nevertheless, we can't just go through our lives dismissing logs in our brother's eyes. Paul's commands, therefore, demand a humble understanding of self. What I love about this is it is a commandment about the group. But if you read the commandment about the group, he inserts in that an attitude-shaping instruction. He says, look to yourself. Watch yourself while you're doing this, lest you also be tempted. What he's saying is that someone who is a Christian, when they look at another brother who's trapped in sin, they ought not to despise that brother for that sin. What does this do? It establishes self-understanding. My view of myself is according to the work of Christ, not according to whether or not I've been particularly successful or not. As we're going to see, he, he demands that they look to their own work here in a second. But I believe he's saying in the context of their own work, the work that God has wrought within him. And that would be very clear if you read the rest of Paul's writings. Therefore, in approaching, my, in, in, in approaching how I understand myself and how I view myself in a community, I cannot exaggerate my successes. I can't puff myself up saying, I'm this very mature Christian. I'm going to swoop in here to save you. On the same token, I cannot insult the Holy Spirit with false humility. By the grace of God, I am not a worm any longer. I was a worm and rebellious hater of God, and I have been restored, and I am being made into a new creation, which God God himself will be proud of and is proud of. That, that's what, it, what he says here in these verses. There's this unwritten law in Christian circles, in major even, mainstream evangelicalism has this notion which says, as a Christian, I have to think the worst possible things about myself. This is why so many people have trouble understanding the reform doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't mean that you are depraved as 
as possible. You're not as sinful as possible. It means that your that sin has had a totalizing effect. Every aspect of you has been tainted by sin. It doesn't mean your everyone is equally evil in in the world. We're not all running around being Adolf Hitler. The point is that we have all been touched by sin. And Paul then commands them as new creations in Christ to begin to call themselves the way that God calls them. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing. Notice he doesn't say if anyone thinks he's something, he's nothing. Right? He says if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but each one should look to his own work or each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. What is he talking about? He's giving a positive command for individual disciples to take maturity as a project on their own. That is, they should be focused in cooperating with the grace of God so that they can boast not in their own work alone, but in their own work as abled by the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit has been so kind to expose the grace of Christ to that believer, they can look to the maturity wrought by the Spirit and actually say, you know, in my flesh, I would be that. But by the grace of God, I am not that any longer. Verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. It's an important commandment there. He's, he's basically stating that the church should have two simultaneous functions. It's two different aspects, repairing one another as need arises. Guess what? Your immune system is vitally important, but your immune system does not pump blood and it doesn't move muscles. There are other functions. So what he's saying is each should take care of one another's burdens. And then just a few verses later, he then says for each one has to bear his own load. That's the only way to understand what Paul's saying unless you just simply accuse him of speaking out of two sides of his mouth. I believe that Paul's saying that these are two principles that are to work in tandem and they create an environment of growth and they create an environment of mercy. To exclude one or the other would create a tyranny or it would destroy the church itself. If we only allowed a principle of mercy to be active in the church if we excused all sorts of sin under the Galatians 6.1 commandment to be restored, then we would be overrun with heresy, with false living, false doctrine. That's what happened in Galatia. But on the, same side, or on the other side of the coin, on the same coin, flip side, we have to be restorative. But I cannot rest as an individual Christian and disciple and be waiting for everyone else to breed maturity in my life. That's what he's saying. Each one should bear his own load. Yes, I cooperate with those who are discipling me and, I, and those who are my, my spiritual authority and leadership, but I need to be working, according to verse 4, let each one test his own work. In testing it, I see what is good and of Christ, and I keep that, and what is not of good, what's not good, what's of myself, I, I crucify that. That's what I think Paul is saying. There's these two dynamics in we restore brothers, but we also are looking to ourself. We're taking care of 
ourselves. And if both things are working in a church, it will grow and it will be able to spread. I think of it like a hospital. A hospital is a place where people who are wounded or sick can come and stay. And they are attended to by the, the doctors and the nurses and whatnot. But if you want to press the analogy, if that same doctor then was sick or got shot or what have you, he would still be able to get help in that, in that hospital. And at the same time, each one of those staff of the hospital should be taking care of themselves. That's what I think Paul's vision is here for the Christian church. And without these two aspects, you would either have a tyranny or you would have just a church that vanishes off into nothingness because it would be overrun with compromise. So, continuing in the same vein, Paul then gives the Galatians instruction on how this mission is to be fulfilled. He says the Christian church should be one that restores and also is growing and testing their work and building upon the foundation of Christ. And then he goes on to give a commandment as to how they are to do this mission together. He says how they should be funded, verse 6, let the one, that is the individual, who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And by all good things, he's not talking about like invitations to e-cards on the internet and little quippy verses that you share with one another or verse-a-day post-it note systems. Sharing good things is sharing the good things of God's creation. He is specifically talking about financial things here. He's talking about those things which are carnal wealth or earthly wealth. He's saying if you are receiving spiritual wisdom, it's nothing to give up earthly goods in exchange for that. Why? As the prosperity teachers say, because of the very next verse. I think this is very interesting. This verse, verse 6 and uh, attached to the next verse, is used to cajole cajole hearers into uh, giving. And the way it works is this. Paul promises that those who sow sparingly reap sparingly and sow heartily reap heartily. And so therefore, you ought to give to me in order that God would give to you. That's essentially the prosperity teaching. It's this karmic-like feedback system where God promises that I'm going to reap, therefore I better sow. So I'm going to sow $20 to get $200 because it it multiplies 30, 60, or 100 fold. And if that sounds disgusting to you, and I hope it should, I'm not even getting started in what the prosperity teachers do when they hyperinflate these verses. And the reason I think so clearly that they are so wrong is because of the words that Paul uses and the thrust of his argument or the aim of his argument. I believe that these two verses actually are the grounding for confidence for giving extravagantly to the mission of God, not in order to reap a harvest in like nature of cash, but rather to reap a harvest by which we are sowing to things that are incorruptible, that we are investing, as Christ told us, our treasures in heaven. Okay, the reason I say this is because Paul's use of agrarian terms, and by that, look closely, sowing, reaping, season, and harvest, point to gospel fruit, not cash. He is not talking about a false altruism. For example, in the, in the United States right now, we receive tax benefits as part of the uh, donation to a nonprofit. 
It's, it's a system in which the government has recognized, oh, money that is given to charity is not truly income, therefore it shouldn't be taxed, right? And as great as that is, I think you should, I, I think you're by God commanded to take advantage of that mechanism because the money isn't Uncle Sam's, it's yours. It, but because it's actually God's, it's, it's not theirs. They demand that you submit all of your money to them and then they give you some of it back. And um, let's not even get started on the devaluation of currency. But the point is that, that today we are blessed in that the government is not demanding all of our paycheck, just some of it. And they also will lift a pinky off of that portion of our money which we give to Christian causes. If getting money back on your taxes is the motivation for giving to the church, woe are you. If, if the law takes away, if the IRS takes away that provision, there should be no change in any budget of any church in our country. I guarantee you that would not be the case, but it should be the case. We do not give in Christian mission, we do not give to the church in order to hopefully get back more cash from the Lord. That is not what Paul is saying. We sow with a view towards gospel fruit. Look at the thrust of these words. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And then he gives an analogy. He, he gives an illustration. This is, this is like exhibit A for this theory, that whatever you sow, you also reap. That's a proverbial understanding. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Yes and amen. But what he's, that's an illustration. What he's talking about here is money. Verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season, there's that agrarian language, we will reap if we do not give up. How, do, how does that work? If you sow wheat and do not harvest wheat, you didn't actually accomplish the growing season. You left the wheat in the fields, it dies in the fields, it rots, it spoils, it's wasted. We cannot give up. So verse 10, so then, because of that, we were guaranteed a promised harvest. Let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. He's saying that because we sow according to the, the mission of Christ, we will reap a harvest. Is that harvest directed at just the church alone? No, because he then says, so then let us do good to everyone. What does that mean? It means that what Paul's understanding is their giving is not just for the needs of the church, but their giving is actually for the needs of the world. It's to be used in evangelistic context. We're doing good to everyone not just to the household of faith, but he does say especially to those who are the household of faith. I think that the aim of Paul's reasoning crescendos into an end that is resulted and directed to the world and to fellow Christians. It's neither one nor the other exclusively, it's both because the mission of the Christian church is to repair and to mature her own while she is reaching out in witness to the world. Christians, therefore, who are generous towards God by charity and good works are guaranteed by his promise to bear fruit measured in true disciples and conversions. Look at this. He's saying they're sowing something, and what are they reaping? We will reap a harvest in due season, 
Therefore, we should keep sowing to those who are in the category of everyone. That, that includes everyone. And those who are in the household of faith. So, nearing the end of his letter, Paul sharply turns. He now moves to a close, as we will do also today. Paul sharply turns to issue a final warning that no one would dismiss the urgency of repentance from the Judaizing teaching. They've just heard the letter. Perhaps they've read it multiple times in the Galatian church. Surely, obviously, from history, we know that these churches valued these letters and treasured them and copied them and read from them and preserved them. He then issues what I would call a final warning. He says in verse 11, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Perhaps that's a reference to the fact that he mentioned he had a problem with his eyes earlier in the book. But very clearly, whether that is a veiled reference or not, very clearly, words that are written in large letters are important. If you ever see like a warning sign or do not touch this socket or wrong way, uh, you know, look overhead for power lines, what have you. Large letters are used for warnings. They're used in danger. If you go out to the street and you look up at the stop sign, stop signs are written in like 340 point font. It's huge because they want you to be very clear, here is where you're supposed to stop. Paul's basically saying, hey, I'm writing this letter to you and I'm issuing warnings. I'm writing this in large letters so that you might understand I'm being very serious about this. This is not just like a footnote or some, if you're really interested and look up the reference in the back of the letter, he's saying, this is a broadcast message that I'm trying to communicate to you in clarity. He reminds them, therefore, of the hypocrisy of the Judaizers' rejection of the formerly Gentile Christians. Remember, the Judaizers were pushing the Gentiles away, saying, we are the true people and you need to become like one of us, whereas Paul is has already become like one of them. Verse 12, it is to those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Why? Because the cross of Christ is hostile to the opinion and pride of man. And because it is hostile to the pride of man, men in their flesh oppose and persecute those who are preachers of the gospel. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. This is very similar to Romans 1 and 2, where Paul is saying that these so-called Jews who pride themselves in keeping the law aren't actually doing the law because they're not reading it according to the law of Christ. They're reading it according to some sort of external code that has to do with particulars instead of a code that deals with intention and morality and ethics, love for God and love for neighbor. For those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. You see this? They want to make a good showing in the flesh that they might boast in your flesh. He's, he's using these languages, uh, th this language as some sort of ironic twist of phrase. At first he's saying the Judaizers want to make a good showing in the flesh that is according to the eyes of man. And then he says, because they want to look good in the flesh, therefore they want to make you look a certain way in your flesh, that is your body. Paul's using some language here to kind of wake the Galatians up and he's saying, he's, he's trying to connect the dots for them. 
The Judaizers are concerned with the eyes of men to make a good showing in the flesh. Therefore, they desire the Galatians to be cut. They are not actually doing this for pride and reverence for the law. They are doing it for their own selfish ends. Paul then answers their sinful love of pride and authority by boasting in the most selfless act of all of human history. He contrasts, they wanted to appear good in the eyes of men, therefore they want you to be cut in your flesh. But then look at this. But far be it from me to boast, not in the Galatians' obedience to his command, but to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I love that. This is a great sentence. Because what Paul's saying is the world and Paul have been inseparably divided. They, can, or they, they have been forever divided. That is, the cross of Christ has crucified the world to Paul. Because of the cross, Paul cannot love the things of the world. And likewise, because of the cross, the world has no claim on Paul. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What Paul's saying is, because of the gospel, it doesn't matter what I look like in my body. It doesn't matter if I'm white or black, Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, male or female. What counts is whether I'm new in Christ. And if I'm new in Christ, I no longer have to worry or be troubled or even indeed permit these Judaizing teachings. To conclude the matter, he again shows that the Judaizers are outside of the community of God's people. We've, we've discussed this many times in the series, and Paul then puts the final nail in the coffin with this phrase. He says, and as for all who walk by this rule. What was the chief concern of a Jew keeping the law? It was whether or not they walk according to the light of the law. The Psalms tell us this over and over again. But what he's saying is, the, what really truly matters is those who walk according to that rule. Whether or not the world has been crucified to them and they to the world. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He's saying blessings on the individual, the, the one who is walking according to the law of Christ and also on the Israel, not of the world, not of the land, not of the ethnicity, on the Israel of God. And understood in the letter, he has to be meaning those who are from the heavenly Jerusalem. We are children of our mother Jerusalem, right? That's what he's saying. Then he goes on and says, For now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. If you appreciate the poetry here, this is... uh, This is as great as any classical music that ends with this great finality. If you ever get the chance, I would I would encourage you get talk to my parents. They they have great understanding of like which symphony you should go listen to. If you've never heard a live symphony that crescendos with an explosion of sound and melody, it's hard to appreciate sometimes the beauty of what he's just done because he's just settled this controversy of who's in Israel, who's out of Israel, who's bearing the mark of Abraham or not bearing the mark of Abraham. And he he puts all of their arguments to shame and then he puts a crescendo at the end or a capstone. This is like an adornment on top of a temple, if you will. 
He says, for now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. What is he saying? The super apostles boasted in zeal for marking bodies. They boasted in their ability to make someone else obey them and to be cut so that they could externally keep the law. And Paul says, external keeping of the law doesn't matter. It matters if you're new inside, if you're a new creation. And then he says, he puts an ironic ending on it. He says, don't bother me anymore because I look like Jesus now. And it's not that I just look like Jesus. It's that I've gone beyond just mere conversion. I'm now suffering for the sake of the gospel. We understand through the rest of the writings of Paul that he was beaten, left for dead, shipwrecked, whipped three different times. What he's saying here is, if you really want to go toe-to-toe, super apostle Judaizers, don't bother me any longer. Remember what happened to me for the sake of Christ. And if you so-called brother are boasting in what happened in your flesh, you're not looking at what happened in Christ's flesh on the cross. If any brother, so-called brother, dare double-cross Paul again, he's saying, look to Christ. He's saying, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And he's not just boasting in the fact that he's been pleased by God, to, to, he's been granted by God the grace of suffering for the gospel, for being beaten in his flesh, but it's not the marks of Paul in his evangelism. They are the marks of Jesus. Paul has this phrase in Colossians 1 that is so beautiful. He says, that he is bearing in his body, he's filling up what is lacking in the measure of Christ's suffering. Not that the cross was insufficient, but that the cross was a local event that happened in Jerusalem. And in order to spread it throughout the world, Paul himself entered into the same quality and indeed manner of sufferings of Jesus Christ. What Paul does is he transcends the arguments of these false teachers he demolishes them and then points them back to where they should have been looking all the while, looking at Jesus. And therefore, he closes his letter praying that they would be anchored in their spirits, not with a fleshly self-confidence like the Judaizers were teaching, nor a law-keeping for righteousness, but rather that they would be established by Christ himself. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Let's close. Father, we are so thankful for Paul's writings and his bold defense of the truth, which even forced him to respond to Peter publicly. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the same zeal and clarity of our surety with with you, that Jesus Christ himself, without him, we have nothing to claim in you, nor could we even be called your children. But Lord, we Uh, We thank you so much for the clear and pure gospel. We pray, Father, that you would give us the Spirit once again, that he would burn away any compromise in our hearts or any looking to ourselves for our own righteousness with you. God, we pray that Christ would be magnified in our eyes, that you would exalt your Son, that he would become for us all in all. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.